But in the foundational truths of the Bible is that God has complete authority over us. Just total authority over us. He's the Creator and we are the creature. Psalm 100 verse 3 says, It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. The result of this, He is really in complete charge of the universe. Right? That that we owe our complete submission to Him, the Sovereign King who rules over all. We're created to be His servants. We are created to do His will. And God created of His own will, as Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and because of Your will they existed and were created. And the implication of that is Psalm 150, verse 6. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Now to some, that may seem a bit scary, a little bit, to submit their lives. What do we become? Become pawns and peons in this universe created merely to carry out the will of a cruel despot? And I say no, everything couldn't be further from the truth because the Lord is good. And our submission to Him is really a, a good thing. Because God always has our ultimate good in mind. And it is best when we submit to Him. Parents, I think you know this, right? Okay, kids, I'm not talking to you so much, but I'm talking to the parents. The parents know that when they call their children to obey, they know that that's right and it's good for them. So children, listen to this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Your obedience to your parents, kids, is a good thing for you. And parents, likewise, our obedience to the Lord is a good thing for us. It works exactly the same way. Yet, sadly, due to our sin, our nature is to be independent. That we have a, a strong desire to resist the authority of God and a desire to go our own way and to do our own thing instead. And, and really, this, this whole dividing, this, this, this everything that I've been talking about is really is the dividing line between Christians and non-Christians. Christians are, are those who have bowed the knee to the Sovereign Lord. They have seen Him as the Creator and the Ruler of all things and they have submitted themselves to His will. They believed in Jesus who died for our sins upon the cross and they have sought to honor Him with all of our lives. That's a Christian. The one who has submitted to this great grand authority and yet a non-Christian is the opposite. They haven't bowed their knee to a sovereign Lord. Instead, they've maintained the rebellion, not believed in the Lord and wanted to live their own way of independence. This really is the, the, the watershed, the continental divide, if you will upon which all the water flows, whether you've bowed your knee to the Lord or not. In our text this morning, we're going to see the religious authorities during the days of Jesus rejecting Jesus' authority over their lives and thereby giving us a picture of what it means to reject Jesus. Our teaching this morning is by way of negative example. We're going to see what the religious leaders did and the basic instruction is don't do that. All right? Don't do that. If you haven't opened your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Mark chapter 11. Our text today comes in 11, verse 27, all the way through chapter 12, verse 12. We want to read it for you here. You can look at the, uh, the, the religious leaders and see how it is they reject Jesus. Mark 11:27. And they came again to Jerusalem... And he was walking in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders 
came to him and began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I I will ask you one question and you answer me and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they began reasoning among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men, they were afraid of the people for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And He began to speak with them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And at harvest time, He sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent them another slave and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them saying, they will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of that vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize Him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that He spoke the parable against them. And so they left Him and went away. What we have in this parable is two scenes. The first involves the religious leaders attacking Jesus. And then the second scene, we see Jesus returning the favor. Here's my first point. Questioning the authority. That's what's taking place here. Uh, These uh, religious leaders are questioning the authority of Jesus. In verse 27, we see Jesus coming again to Jerusalem. During the Passion Weeks, we know that He would spend His day in Jerusalem, but He would spend His nights in Bethany. You see that in verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, He left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. And uh, we can just kind of trace some chronology here as well. Seeing that Mark chapter 11, we see Him coming in, the triumphal entry. It's probably on Sunday. It's known as Palm Sunday. And then verse 11 says that He goes to Bethany at night. And then the next morning, you can see that uh, they came, uh, verse 15, they, they come to Jerusalem the next day. And on the way, they see the, uh, the fig tree there. It's probably Monday morning when they're by, by there. And then when evening came, verse 19, they went out of the city again. And so here perhaps is Tuesday morning. They're entering the, the city again. They'd seen the fig tree. And Peter said, hey, look, the fig tree. And it was withered up. And here in verse 27, we find Jesus coming again into the temple area. He's coming there once on Sunday. On Monday, He cleansed the temple. And here it is Tuesday, coming again into the temple area. And remember what happened the day before. He had um, overturned the tables. And He had uh, char- 
cast the money changers out. It wouldn't let anyone permit to come in the temple. He said, is it not written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. So cleanse the temple and now he comes again into Jerusalem. And again he comes into the same temple area and he meets some of the people that he had met with last time. He meets with the priests, those in charge of the temple activity. He meets with the scribes who are experts in the law and the elders who are the community leaders in those days. And they came to Jesus asking a question. They said, verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things or who gave you this authority to do these things? you got an or there, which means there's two questions they ask, um, both of which have to do with the actions of the previous day. Um, when Jesus drove out, those were buying and selling in the temple. They didn't like it. They're thinking about it. If they see Jesus again, what are we going to ask him about? Let's ask him about his authority. What, what, what are you doing? And both these questions are really the same thing. They have to do with authority. What, by what authority have you come into the temple to disrupt everything? It's really a reasonable question. I mean, suppose I went to Cliff Breakers and, uh, you know, there's hundreds of people are there to enjoy this banquet feast and, and I enter the kitchen and begin to disrupt everything, right? The plates that are prepared, I push them over onto the table and the salad bowls I, I dump out and I throw the bread on the floor and the sheet cakes that they had, I'm turning them over and throwing everything in that. I'm just disrupting the place. What do you think the cooks would do? They wouldn't like it too much. And what if I then got them and said, ladies and gentlemen, I have an announcement to make. We've discovered the food is poisoned. Don't serve this food. Send them home. They can't have food today. Pretty close to what Jesus did. They were going up to worship. And He prohibited them from worshiping in that way. And, and you might reasonably ask me if I did that. Cliff Breakers, where, where did Steve get the authority to do that? Right? The, the cooks in the kitchen would be saying that. The people maybe outside as they heard what was happening might, might say that. If I simply a guy off the street, no substance in my claim of poisoning of the food, there would be no substance to that. But think about that. If I was the owner of the place, it might be a little different. Now, that might be bad business to do what I did, okay? But, it, but at least I have the authority to do what I can do. It's my business. I can do anything I want. That's the sort of question religious leaders are asking. Who, who died and left you in charge of the temple, Jesus and, and even this question, what sort of authority you have, really wasn't such a question at all. They knew all about Jesus. They knew that He had no authority of such things. I mean, he, he, in order to make such changes in the temple, you need to go through the existing structures. Right? And um, they knew Jesus hadn't been educated in rabbinical schools. Right? Right on up the echelon. He hadn't got all his degrees. He was a, a self-proclaimed expert in the law. He wasn't a priest. And He's the one that came in and disrupted everything. No one was happy uh, the religious leaders weren't. They're disrupting their, their business. And in fact, even in verse 18, the first comment we read after Jesus said, you've made this place a robber's den, we see the chief priests and the scribes began seeking how to destroy Jesus. For they're afraid of Him. For the whole crowd was astonished at His teaching. So they're thinking, how might they destroy Him? And they thought about, well, let's ask Him about His uh, his authority. And and asking about His authority, really, really it's... It's more than a question. It's, it's really a rebuke. Hey, Jesus, we're in charge of the temple, not you. You have no right to come in here and do what you did to the temple. What, what you did is wrong and you need to know it. You need to give an account for your actions. So what's your account you're going to give? And they really tried to, tried to trap Him. Verse 29, Jesus then answered a question with a, a question in typical rabbinical style. They would often do that. 
When they're asked a question, respond with a question. In fact, one of the rabbis was asked, Rabbi, why, why do we answer questions with questions? And he said, the answer to that is, is it a bad thing to answer questions with questions? And so here was the question. Jesus said, I will ask you one question and you answer me and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And they demand him, answer me. It's a great question, right? They brought up the issue of authority and Jesus, on the spot, thinks about this question of authority as well. Brings up the same issue. This time with reference to John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist and Jesus had a lot of similarity. Um, their ministry was... Very much the same. Did some pretty bold things. John called the Pharisees, these religious righteous people, you brood of vipers. He told them to repent. And Jesus was the same way. He said, did some bold things to upset the Pharisees, like disrupting the temple. He called the Pharisees hypocrites and cast woes upon them who didn't believe in Him. And so determining a source of authority of John the Baptist would be a good question. And rather than answering question, they have a meeting. So they, they all they all, they all get together they all they all gather together and they said hmm think about well if we say from from heaven they don't say why don't you believe us but if we, if we say well, from men they might they might get get angry with us and so what what exactly do we do here and, and so they came back and said we don't know it's not that they didn't know it's that they were thinking about how either answer would, would doom them. If they said John's Baptist from heaven, they'll show themselves to be unbelievers because everyone believed. Because they neither believed John nor they would believe Jesus, I'm sorry. And if they said John's Baptist from men, they're going to risk going against the public opinion of the day. So, so just think here a few moments what, how they're thinking through this theological question. When they meet together, they're not seeking to answer the question Rather than thinking, to think about, okay, what will happen if I answer my question this way? Does that make sense? So, in other words, they're not saying, oh, John, was he really from heaven or from men? They're saying, what's going to happen if we say one or the other? And that's not the way you do theology. That might be the way you do politics. But that's not the way that you do theology. You know what John Piper said about this? He said, the elders and chief priests do not use their minds to formulate a true answer to Jesus' question. How do they use their minds? They reason carefully. If we say this, then such and such will happen. And if we say that, then such and such will happen. And they're reasoning carefully. Why? Because the truth is at stake? And John Piper says, no, it's because their skin is at stake. And they don't want to be shamed. They don't want to be harmed. And that's why they said to Jesus, we don't know. And notice what it is that warped their answer. The fear of man trumped the fear of God. They're more fearful of men than they were with God. More fearful how people would respond to them. More fearful of that than getting a theological question wrong. And this question, by the way, is an important question. Future destinies ride on the answer to this question. Where did Jesus get His authority? If Jesus got His authority from God, then we need to submit to Him. We need to bow the knee to Him. We must believe Him, obey Him, and fear Him. But if Jesus' authority was merely a human authority, we have nothing to fear. And we aren't compelled to believe in Jesus nor obey Him in any way. But these religious leaders are really unwilling to face the truth about Jesus. 
And so Jesus refuses to deal with them. This is an astonishing answer, verse 33, right? He said, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He said, I'm not going to deal with you. He didn't have time to play games, especially with those who were intent upon destroying Him. They weren't willing to take a stand and Jesus wasn't willing then to answer their question. And I think that the same thing happens many times today with many people. They won't take a stand for Jesus. They kind of be skeptical maybe. And Jesus is silent towards them because they aren't willing to come His way. I, I think many also are more interested in the outcome of their beliefs rather than holding a beliefs regardless of the implications. People, when they think about Jesus, might might wonder about my relatives. How, how my relatives going to respond? Or, or they might say, what, what implications does it have for my work? Or people say, what about my reputation that I've built if I believe in Jesus? What, what about my friends? What, what will they say? And so they, they kind of stay on the friend, fence kind of thinking about if I am wholeheartedly in for Jesus, what, what's going to happen? And, and fearful of that, people just stay on this fence. And Jesus says, I'm not going to talk with you. I'm not going to deal with you. And I don't think that Jesus gives modern day skeptics much of an answer. They're not really seeking an answer. They're just questioning the authority of Jesus. And so I just say, are you questioning the authority of Jesus or does He have your full attention? Because there are consequences to following Jesus. I mean, Jesus didn't paint a a pretty picture. Those who follow Him. If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow Me. Mark 8, verse 34. In other words, the follower of Jesus must die to self, to family, to reputation, to friends. Do you remember when Christian left the city of destruction to go to the celestial city? Do you remember what the people in the city did? Anyone know? Kids, you familiar with this book? Parents, remember what they did? Nathan, what did they do? They said he went nuts. They said he was crazy. And they started calling him, Hey, Christian, come back. You're crazy. Come on. Come stay with us. Come on. And then two representatives went out to try to persuade him, right? Who were they? Obstinate and pliable, right? They went out trying to persuade him to come back. And obstinate says, Oh, you've got to come back. And when he didn't, obstinate just said, Ha, ah, let him go. And pliable was, Well, maybe I'll go along for a while. But, but, but what is it that, that drove Christian? You remember when Christian and pliable were walking along the way of the celestial city? Christian was telling about all the wonderful things awaiting for them in the celestial cities. It was, it was the glories of Christ and the glories of heaven that was worth it rather than the shame of people. And such may be the case with us. But that's okay. It's far better there and far better on that path than to waver on the path of not bending the knee. Jesus even gave promises of the rewards that will face those who, who follow Him. Mark 10, verse 29 and 30. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the Gospel's sake. Implication, you do leave those things for the Gospel's sake and for Jesus' sake. But that He will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Are you like these religious leaders waffling? Have you bowed the knee to Christ? It's really what this, this says. Have you re- rejected the authority of Jesus? Are you questioning His authority? Because we've seen the religious leaders questioning His authority and now we see Jesus fighting back. 
we see them rejecting the stone. This comes in chapter 12. We read in verse 1, and he was speaking to them in parables. Now, chapter 12, beginning of is parable. We have one parable of probably several that, that he told. Or maybe it was just a way to say this is a big complex parable talking about images, but they understood what was happening. I already read it, so I'll just work through this, this text with you. In verse 1, we see the first character. Now, David, our son, he's five years old and he's begun to, to figure out who the main characters are of um, particular movies or slides. So, so we're going to find the first character here. The first character is the man who planted a vineyard. Of course, representing God. The land of Israel is covered with vineyards. Climate's perfect for growing grapes. The Jews would have known all about planting vineyards because there are vineyards all around as much as there are cornfields in Illinois. And they would have understood about how they grow. And for us, it doesn't take us too difficult to understand. But we see the, so we see farmers caring for their fields. We can imagine these farmers, this vineyard who planted a vineyard caring for his vineyard. And in planting this vineyard, he certainly took some effort to make sure this vineyard would grow. He, um, may have had to cultivate the soil, may have had to remove some rocks, cut down some weeds, but it was growing there. And then look, look at all the efforts this man did to make sure this vineyard would grow. He, he not only planted it, he put a wall around it. Now, that, that's not a cheap enterprise. Um, occasionally, if you drive through here, northern Illinois, you'll see some, some fences around cornfields, but they're expensive. Expensive to maintain, and so most people don't even do that. But here, to put a wall up around this vineyard to protect it was expensive, and yet it would protect it from animals that might come to enjoy the crops for themselves. Second, here he dug a vat underneath the wine press. You see that even there in verse one as well. That means that he was expecting fruit to come. He wasn't going to take his his uh, grapes and take them over to some other place to the grain elevator to harvest them. He put it right there so he could harvest the grapes and the the wine just right there, right in the vineyard itself. He also built a tower, is what it says. That would have allowed for further care of his vineyard, would allow one of his workers to stand up and watch for maybe thieves coming in, maybe animals trying to breach the fence. In all this activity, we see here's, here's the thrust. is This landowner had great care in building this vineyard. He cultivated the soil, protected the field by a, a wall, Put a wine press in there, ready for fruit. Put a tower. He's ready for a successful and profitable operation. Now, for some reason, it says uh, that he went out and he went on a journey. He rented out to vine growers and went on a journey. We don't know what kind of journey he went on, but in his absence, he transferred the jurisdiction of the, the vineyard, not to himself, but to other people who could grow this for them. And here it says that he rented it out to the vine growers. I mean, that arrangement's not unusual. It happens today. Farmer, people who own land will rent it out to farmers. A couple different ways you can do that. You can either share crop it, right? Split the, split the portions of the, of the crops, or you can cash rent the acreage. Whatever. There's lots of different ways to do it. And somehow they had come upon this agreement of how it's going to happen, and then he went on a, a journey. And then verse 2, we see the expectation that at the, the harvest time, he was expecting to receive from reward from everything that he would had arranged there. So, in accordance with the rental agreement, we see a slave 
he sent the slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. The owner was expecting to see the slave come back cash in hand. And yet, that was not the case. Rather, he came back. Verse 3 says, they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So he came back rather than with cash. He returned empty-handed. He came back with bruises on his face, the beatings that he received. It's not good. Here this landowner had spent much time and effort building this vineyard. He went away and those caring for the vineyard didn't care for it very well. And Jesus, and then the owner then sent back and treated badly. It was an awful thing. But, verse 4, we see the same thing happen again. He sent him another slave. And they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. It didn't happen just once. It happened twice. He sent this slave over there. And poor slaves, I mean, they were merely following the request of their master. And rather than being received kindly and having some negotiation perhaps and receiving some of the fruit of the labor, they were harshly treated. And one would think that the owner would have enough sense. Okay. They did not only to one. They did not only to two, but he, he sent some more slaves. Verse 5, and he sent another, and that one was killed. He didn't come back. Maybe he came back in a coffin. You can only imagine what took place when that one was killed. Sticks or rods used to beat the slaves. Who knows? Maybe a sword went through. Maybe hung. Who knows? Stones maybe. And, and, and you'd think that after you sent one slave and you sent another one and the third one was killed, you'd like maybe bring in some reinforcements and, and deal with it yourself. Maybe with some army um, backup. But this owner is somewhat even naive, if you will. It says, so with many others, beating some and killing others. So how many slaves did he send? Well, at least three we have here. So with many others. Is two many? Is three many? Is five many? Is ten many? Fifteen, twenty times. Who knows? This kept happening over and over and over again. But then... See, the owner doing just an amazing thing in verse 6. He had one more to send. It's like he ran out of his slaves. And he sent a beloved son. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. Is that naive or what? Now, I say that, I say that reverently because this is, uh, this is picturing God. But it's like, I'm, I'm not sure that the owner gets it here. It's a little bit like the, um, the story of the prodigal son. Um, it, it almost seems we, we see that story, the, the, the prodigal father seems not quite to get it. I mean, he knows that his older son who asked for half the inheritance, he knows what he's going to do with it. His character was around for a long time, and yet, yet what is he? He's prodigal God. He's wasteful in His mercy and His grace. And, and so likewise here we see a God who is wasteful in sending prophet after prophet after prophet to people who are hated and beaten and, and even killed and then eventually even sending the Son 
It's just because of God's grace to give another chance. I'll give you another chance. I'll give you another chance. I'll give you another chance. Here's another slave. Here's another prophet. Here's my son. Here's the last chance. What are you going to do? Well, the results of the visit are given in verses 7 and 8. The vine growers said to one another, This is the heir! His dad owns the place! Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours! They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. I mean, such was the wickedness of these men. They killed the son as well, thinking that they were going to, to get the vineyard. And, and Jesus asked the question then in verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Now, it's not a mystery what he will do. He'll bring these men to justice is what he will do. That's Jesus' answers, right? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Now, this imagery of the vine growers and this parable and this illustration is what have been a well-known imagery in the days of Jesus. Remarkably similar to Isaiah chapter 5 that I, I read for you earlier. I don't need to take the time to read it now. In fact, verse 1 of chapter 12 is a, is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 5 verse 1. And it's talking about a vineyard that God prepares. And, and the illustration there is, is, is a little bit different. Um, the, the illustration there is of God planting the vineyard and the plants being the people of Israel and expecting the plants to bear fruit, but they didn't. And as a result of that, they were destroyed. The whole vineyard would be destroyed in Isaiah chapter 5. The land would be uncultivated and weeds would grow up and the rain would be withheld to prevent anything from growing. And that's a really a prophetic word of what would happen for Israel. And indeed, that did take place as they were destroyed by Assyria. Why? Because Israel bore no fruit. And, and here's the interesting thing about this, this whole parable. The, every religious leader would have known about this parable. And as much as you know about the stories of Jesus walking on the water or he, feeding the 5,000, or the story of the sower and the seed. So likewise, these Jews who knew the Old Testament far better than we do, knew the parable of the vineyard of Isaiah chapter 5. They could have interpreted the parable for you. They could have demonstrated in history how it came to pass. Right? That Isaiah wrote, whatever, 800 years before Christ, and he was writing this to warn Israel, and then Tiglath-Pileser came and destroyed. Yep, exactly what he said came to be. And they could have interpreted perhaps some of these scribes, particularly who are experts in law, maybe had preached sermons on this text. But Jesus took the motif of Isaiah's parable and he updated it, changed it of what was taking place in his day. In Isaiah's parable, landowner represents God, the vineyard represents Israel, just like Jesus did, but he, he changes it. The, the, the plants aren't the people in this case. It's the, the, those who are overseeing the whole vineyard. Um, those are the people. The, the vine growers represent the religious leaders. The slaves represent the prophets. And the son represents Jesus himself. God planted and cultivated this nation. He protected them from surrounding nations. The landowner would put a fence around them. He expected to see fruit from Israel. Digging the vine press. He provided a, a means of protection with his guard tower. The responsibility of spiritual leadership came to these religious leaders. God sent his prophets to the landowner. To the, to the vine growers, he sends Jesus to these vine growers, and even he was rejected. That, that's what Jesus is saying. And what would the owner do? What would God do? Well, in the parable in Isaiah's day, they destroy the vineyard. In this day, the owner of the vineyard will come and destroy the vine growers 
and give the vineyard to someone else, right? And that is true because the gospel now has come to Gentiles. He has destroyed the vine growers and he has given the vine to someone else. He's given it to Gentiles. It has come to us. And I think from this parable, a couple lessons come out. First of all is the kindness of God. I mean, that's what you see from this landowner. Just the strong sense that he cared for his vineyard, the, the great extent that he went to see that this vineyard would, would prosper. And, and, and just think about the large scope of Israel's history, how much God did to care for the people of Israel. He, he called Abraham out of Ur the Chaldeans, chose him out and just said, I'm going to bless you. And you are going to be a blessing. In you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. A nation whose numbers would number the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore would come from Abraham. And God made fit to make sure that that took place. And then through amazing providences, He protected this family from a famine that came upon the land, bringing them into Egypt. And as time went out, they became slaves in Egypt, but He brought them out of Egypt by a, a miraculous hand, delivering them with unbelievable displays of sovereignty and grace and kindness and goodness to Israel. He, he brought them into the promised land. Blessed them abundantly and continued to care for them for many years. And yet, not only do we see the kindness of God, we see the rebellion of Israel, right? How did Israel respond to the kindness of God? Well, they rebelled. And they rebelled. And they rebelled. If you read the book of Judges, you see how they forsook the Lord again. Israel was afflicted and, and distressed. And, and then God raised up judges to deliver them. And, and they said, thank you very much, God. And then they went their own way. And then God delivered them again. And they said, thank you very much. And then they rebelled again. And again, the time of the judges is a time of rebellion. The time of kings is a time of rebellion. Sure, there are a few good kings like Hezekiah and Josiah, but many of the kings were bad in Israel. And many of the kings led Israel astray and Israel wanted to go astray. God was kind to them and gracious to them and they still went astray. And then the Lord sent prophets. And you know how the people responded to them. Just think about Jeremiah. Beaten, put in stocks, thrown in prison, cast into an empty cistern. That's a lot of Jeremiah. Because he said, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon is going to come and destroy you, Judah. They didn't like that message. So kill the messenger. We're told in 1 Kings 18.4 that Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord. And we don't know how many that means. Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord. I mean, Jezebel, I mean, she was married to Ahab, king. And she destroyed all the prophets. We don't know how many there are, but in that time, Obadiah hid a hundred of them and provided food for a hundred prophets. And she considered to have killed them all. Hundreds of prophets she killed. Second Chronicles 24, the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah. He said, Thus says the Lord God, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, He also forsaken you. And what did they do to Him? Stoned Him to death. It's well known that people, the Jews, were those who persecuted their own prophets. Jesus said that. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who persecutes your prophets, stones the prophets, kills those sent to you. Stephen refers to that in Acts 7.52. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? The exception for a prophet was to face a life of no persecution. The vast majority of them were oppressed, afflicted, beaten, and killed. And yet, 
Despite their great rebellion, God continued to give them another chance and another chance and another chance and another chance, another opportunity again and again and again. It's like what Jesus described in the parable is exactly what the kindness of God is. And even in the rebellion, God continued to demonstrate patience. And I just say that what happened to Israel is just like our nation, United States today. Just like it. God has been extremely patient with our nation. Today is a day of God's tremendous kindness and patience. The Gospel has been widely proclaimed in our nation. Churches abound in America. I mean, anyone interested in learning the truth about God can go into many churches and hear the good news of Jesus. I admit, the gospel has been distorted in some places, um, and some places pretty watered down, but there is enough in many places for people to begin a pursuit of the knowledge of Jesus. At least they can pursue a knowledge and then figure out, hey, there's some things here they're denying. At least go maybe with some education and get to another place. But anybody can go to any church and start to find something there. I remember speaking with a college student from another nation, a foreign exchange student that we had had in for Thanksgiving one time. And he was amazed by the number of churches here in America. There's just so many churches here. It's because God has abundantly blessed America with churches. I've heard Americans come here to our church building and talk about how many churches are nearby. Right? Think about it. If you drive down from Alpine and you come to church from Alpine, how many churches do you cross? How many of you travel south on Alpine to get here? How many churches do you cross? At least three, uh, I count. Okay. Now, what if you come from the west? How many pass by from the west? Phil, how many pass by? Five? Okay. And from the east? I know of at least just one. Maybe there's more. Yeah, further east, right? More, but just like wherever you come from in Rockford, Loves Park area, you're going to have churches all around. Now, if people don't even go to church, there's opportunities on the radio. There's opportunities even on secular television sometimes. Or even with cable, right? You get 300 stations. At least there are some religions. And, and a lot of it's bad, but at least there's enough of something there. That could be a, a help to turn. The internet, of course, is abundant with anything, good and bad. But if you're interested, I mean, all you need to do is Google whatever, Jesus Bible, and you just you know, go to Bible.org. It's like one of the best sites on all the internet. It's a tremendous resource. There's a lot that's bad, there's a lot that's true, but I, I think that's a God's abundant blessing to us, a nation that is it's unlike Nepal, right? Alyssa, it's unlike Burundi, right? They don't have desiring God in Burundi. <laughs> But um, they do, but they don't have computers to get at it, right? They, and they don't speak English, so they can't, they can't get at it. all the resources that God has given us. And there's no other nation in the history of the world that has the Christian heritage that we have. I mean, you think about when the early settlers in America left Europe, they left for religious reasons, most of them. Oh, it's mixed with some people coming entrepreneurially. That's, that's certainly fine. But, but the people that left had the exact same theology that we have here today. They left for religious reasons. They established a nation that was founded upon Christianity, or at least deism, whatever, strong Christian influence, however that goes. And how have we responded as a nation to all these blessings? Just like Israel, right? We've rebelled. And God has been patient and patient and patient. There's rebellion in our society all over today. 
becoming increasingly secular, taking God out of everything, becoming increasingly immoral. We are a nation adrift, pursuing our own pleasures with little regard to God and His Word. And if we continue our rebellion, we will be the vineyard of Isaiah 5 that is wiped out. And we'll have no one to blame but ourselves. Because God has just been incredibly patient and kind with us as a nation. And with Israel, the days in which God's patience ran out came when they rejected the sun. They rejected stone, which we see here in chapter 12, verse 10. This didn't catch Jesus by surprise. He knew they'd reject Him. In fact, that's the whole point of the parable that Jesus told. He says, Have you not even read the Scripture? Of course. I mean, these were experts in the law. Have you even read this one? Here, let, let me go. Where did this one come from? The stone which the builders rejected. Help me. I forgot to study this week. Where did it come from? Psalm 118. Right, right down there. Verse 22. Right, The stone which the builders rejected. This became the chief cornerstone. It came about from the Lord. It's marvelous in our eyes. Now, there's different ideas about what exactly the cornerstone is. Whether it's the first stone laid from which everything in the house is, is shaped or fashioned or... We even heard some say the cornerstone is like the, the top capstone, the, the keystone on the top of an arch. It gets prominence right up there. That without that stone, nothing holds together. We don't know, but, but what it means though is that Jesus is the best stone and the best stone, the most important stone, has been rejected. Now, here's the ironic thing that if anybody knows stone, it's the builders. Right? In our day and age, we build with wood. And a carpenter knows knows really well what a, a good two-by-four looks like. In fact, I remember one summer I worked for a carpenter and uh, my first job was to take this big stack of, I'm not sure, I don't know how big it was, it was eight feet across by eight feet by four feet high and I had to take the boards out of there and he taught me how to sight, uh, line them up and see if they were straight enough or not and see if they were good, they went in the good pile, if they were bad, they went in the bad pile, he took it back to the lumber yard and rejected them. But I, I learned pretty well how to, how to sight a two-by-four down there and... Um, his standards were pretty high. He wanted them just straight as could be because uh, to go in the place because they're important. They want to want to make them just straight. And a, a carpenter knows wood. A machinist knows a good hunk of metal from a bad hunk of metal. And a geologist knows where to dig and where not to dig. And here it is: the ironic thing: these builders who knew about stones rejected the stones. These people who were looking for Messiah should have known what they were looking for and looking for the Messiah, but they rejected Him. And here He was, right under the nose, and they totally missed Him. They'd seen His miracles. They'd seen His life and conduct. They'd heard His teaching. And, and nothing computed because they were rejecting His authority. And that's the point, really, of verse 12, why they were seeking to seize Him. Yet they feared the people, for they understood He spoke the parable against them. And so they left and went away. The typical response to these religious leaders, they hated Jesus with a passion, wanted to seize Him, understood He's attacking them, speaking against them, and so they're trying to go at Him. They're rejecting the stone. And again, we see here in verse 12 that they were fearing the people. You sense a common problem amongst these men? Is it they, they feared the people more than they feared the Lord? And fearing the people actually is what kept Jesus safe. Um... Over and over. I mean, we saw that, right? In the end of chapter 11, right? They're, they're fearing the people. If they say John the Baptist merely came from people, because they all regard him as a prophet, there'd be revolt. And here they are, they're, they're fearing the people. They can't, they can't grab Jesus at this opportunity. But soon they would have 
the opportunity. In fact, all of Mark 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 is all about just mounting opposition, waiting and waiting and waiting until finally His death would come in chapter 15. It's coming. And Jesus says, I know it's coming. I'm the cornerstone. I'm going to be rejected. But that rejection, I'm going to be the, the chief. I'm going to be the top. And of course that happened, right? Jesus was rejected, but He became the highest, the One who rules and reigns over all. And I want you to see here that this, verse 11 says, this came about from the Lord. God did this whole thing. This was God's idea. This was God's plan. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Uh, the fighter verses we're memorizing, here's the church. They, they're right there. Tina put them for you on your bulletin. I tell you, it's very encouraging. A prayer meeting this morning as we went around and over these. Uh, our text last, last week was 1 Corinthians 10, 13. We worked hard to memorize that with the kids. And um, just several people sharing just about what they learned from memorizing that verse. A verse this week comes from Isaiah 53. Verse 4 and 5. I encourage you to take this verse. Memorize it with your families. It'll do good. Surely our briefs, griefs, surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon Him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes we are healed. Phil Gosky was leading the prayer meeting then talked about verse 10 of Isaiah 53. You know what that says? The Lord was pleased to crush him if he would render himself as a guilt offering. God is the one who crushed his son. Who killed Jesus? Well, the Jews did. Right? They, the Romans did. Well, of course the Romans did. But ultimately, it's God killed Jesus. That's what verse 11 says here. This came about from the Lord. The Lord orchestrated. Right? Acts chapter 4. Predetermined plan of God that, that this stone would be rejected and this rejected stone would become the chief cornerstone. It's no accident that He was on the cross. As it says in verse 11, then it's marvelous in our eyes. So the cross is what gives us hope. The, the, the cross is what is marvelous to us. Is it, is it God's ways are different than our ways. We would expect the king to come with all glory and yet God brings His king who is a humble servant and dies upon a cross to be high and lifted up. God has, has brought His saving arm to people who just repent of their sins and believe in Him. That's what this whole Gospel is about. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus came preaching, saying the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe in the Gospel. If the chief cornerstone never been rejected we'd still be in a state the Israelites were in. Looking for a Messiah. Hoping. That we'd be traveling up to Jerusalem, offering bulls and goats in an effort to atone for our sin. But the book of Hebrews is clear. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. If the chief cornerstone had never been rejected, we'd still be dead in our sins without hope in this present life. The cross of Christ would become marvelous in our eyes. I want to show you one thing and then talk about the marvel. Let's, let's turn to uh, Psalm 118. So I want to show you another verse. We get Psalm 118, verse 22, right there, right? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. 
Here it is. Verse 23. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Verse 24. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, right? It's what we sang today. Ito angara, ito angara, right? This is the day. What day did the Lord make? He made today, yes, but especially He made the day in which Jesus died upon the cross. That's what makes the day so special. It's just tied right there. The stone which was rejected. It's the Lord's doing. That's the day. And by the way, verse 25, O Lord, do save, we beseech Thee. O Lord, Hoshiana. That's what it's talking about there. Hosanna, Hosanna. Verse 26, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. All these are, are passion verses. They're passion narrative. And this is the day that the Lord has made. It's marvelous in our eyes. And I just say, is the cross of Christ marvelous in your eyes? Consider the hymn we sang. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is Love, he ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Is that marvelous? Is that great for you? That belief and trust in Jesus means that you're secure in him and no tongue is ever going to Never say get away because he's got us in his hand. He's not going to let us go. It's the glories of the gospel. It helps us in temptation, right? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, it's going to happen. If you know your own thoughts, you know your own heart, you know the wickedness of your own heart. When, when God is there, what do we do? Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Is that marvelous in your eyes? That's, I mean, that's the glories of the Gospel, right? Is, is that though we might see sin when we look to Christ, and when God looks at us, our belief in Christ, He sees no sin because He sees all our sin cast on Jesus. Behold Him there, the risen Lamb. My perfect, spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am who made an end. I'm sorry. The King of glory and of grace. One with Himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased with His blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. Christ my Savior and my God. And there it is. In Jesus where our life is. The Bible often talks about us being in Christ. We are in Jesus on His throne. Ephesians 2, He's raised us up, seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. And I, I just encourage you to marvel at these things and just say, this is wonderful. And say, it's a day that Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. Because if you're not doing that, if you're not rejoicing in that, it, it may just be it's because your authority isn't there. Maybe because you haven't bowed your knee to Him. Because when you bow your knee to Him, these things become real. So let's not question the authority of Jesus. Let's not reject the stone. But let's embrace the stone. Let's embrace His authority. Let's pray. Father, I would pray for Your, your grace upon these words. I know I've, I've preached them weekly today. And would pray that You would help. Just take Your Word. Sink it deep into our hearts. Cause us to reflect upon the patience and kindness of You. Cause us to look 
at our own rebellion. Cause us to turn from that, O Lord. And do a work in our hearts, I pray, with Your Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.